0: All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with goodranchers.com. That's right. If you go on to GoodRanchers and you use promo code NIC and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breasts, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Let me tell you why yesterday was actually a very important day, not only in Virginia, but for the rest of the country. Yesterday went largely unnoticed and that's because no most people don't understand that in Virginia we have something called pre-filing, which is to say that all of the bills, or let's just say most of the bills that we're going to hear in the 2022 session had to be submitted yesterday by 5 p.m., in order to get drafted by Legislative Information Services. Now, you still have the ability to drop some bills after that deadline, but that is generally when the vast, vast majority of bills that we will hear for the next legislative session initially get submitted. And once those bills get sent to the clerk, then we're all gonna know what's on the docket for 2022. And the question that I think all of our voters have in Virginia, but really the rest of the country is watching as well, is will Republicans make good on our promises? We're going to discuss all of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Okay, so the first question that you have to ask whenever you're looking at legislation um, and you're about to go into a new legislative session. I mean, obviously, there, there are things that we believe are good policy and we want to get these things accomplished. We also need to look at what did people elect us to do? right? Because Republicans ran on a particular platform. Democrats ran on a particular platform. And The platform that wins and the platform that loses tells us a lot about what voter expectation might look like for this next legislative session. Now, again, I've always been of the opinion that my job in government is not to micromanage your life. It's not to come up with a bunch of new laws, rules, regulations, and taxes uh, by which I I micromanage your life for you. That's not my job. My job is to protect your liberty, to protect your property rights, and otherwise leave you free to live your life the way you want provided you are not infringing on the other, other people to do the same, right? So that's the philosophy I've taken for the last six years into the General Assembly. That's the philosophy I plan to take into this General Assembly, which will be my seventh year. But it is important to go back and evaluate what happened during this last election cycle for you as the voter, for you as the citizen, because one of the things we're going to be talking about here today is, is understanding kind of the thought process that a lot of legislators will be taking into this session, right? So they're, they're looking at what did they run on? What were their voting records? What were the things that their opponents, you know, maybe uh, took shots at them for? What were the things that they passed that they know their constituents really liked? Uh, what were the main issues that were trending in the polls when, when people went to go and vote? These are all things that they're taking into consideration. And so let's do a quick recap of, okay, why did we win? Well, there's two things you have to look at. One is you have to look at the things you did well. You also have to look at the mistakes that the other side made. So for the last two years in in Virginia, every single apparatus of government, from the governor's mansion, attorney general's office, lieutenant governor, the Senate, the House of Delegates, everything was controlled by Democrats. They could essentially do whatever they wanted, right? And- that's largely what they did for two years. There, now, there were certain things that you had some people in the Senate that were concerned about. They thought it would actually hurt them uh, and hurt their reelection chances if they let him pass. And so there were some bills that passed out of the House of Delegates that got killed in the Senate, right? Like quietly killed in a committee or what they what they call passing on to the next legislative session, which is to say okay, they're not killing your bill, they're just passing it over to, you know, the next session the following year. A lot of things like that happened, but Democrats were able to get through massive changes to Virginia. Everything from mandating a $15 minimum wage to significantly challenging right to work in Virginia, although they didn't outright repeal it. They had a lot of things with uh, public sector collective bargaining. They had a lot of massive changes that they did within education. One of the biggest issues that they got slammed on was the way that they treated education and how some of their policies uh, were being played out in in a very practical way that was affecting the lives of students and their parents. Right, so these were all things that they got to do for the last two years. Uh, so that had a major effect, right? This, this was they had to actually run on a record; they couldn't just run on good intentions, right? And, and for I mean, a long time prior to the la- you know previous two years, Democrats in the House of Delegates got to run on the uh, you know the the ideas of what it would be like if they were in charge. Now they had to actually run on what happened when they were in charge, and it didn't work out too well for them, all right? So that's one factor, right? They got slammed for a lot of things that they did when they were in power. There was other factors as well, like Joe Biden and the fact that Joe Biden got elected to, Joe Biden got elected by a lot of people to pretty much not be Donald Trump, right? That's That was what they expected out of Joe Biden. And then he got in there and he, he advertised himself as kind of like this, this moderate guy that wasn't gonna do a whole lot, that was just gonna try to keep things peaceful, and what does he do? Well, he gets in there and he almost immediately adopts, you know, the, the far left wing policy objectives of people like Bernie Sanders, AOC and the squad, Elizabeth Warren. And so now all of a sudden it's it's massive inflation, it's massive redistribution, it's massive tax increases, government spending. Then when it comes to things like Afghanistan, he completely botches it up. When it comes to things like public safety, he's not doing that great a job, maybe because he's you know directing his DOJ to look at parents showing up at school board meetings as opposed to actual of violence, vandalism, and rioting, right? These are all problems that a lot of the people that voted for Joe Biden, this is not what they bargained for, right? This is not what they were expecting, but that is what they got. So not only were Virginia voters voting based off of what Democrats had done in the House of Delegates here in Virginia or what Democrats had done in the governor's mansion, etc. They were also voting on what Democrats have been doing nationwide. And a lot of people see this, and I I see it, as sending a message to the Democratic Party that this extreme left-wing view is not what they bargained for. Right. Now, amazingly enough, you have people like AOC suggesting that the reason why Terry McAuliffe and the Democrats lost is because they weren't far left enough, they weren't socialist enough, they weren't woke enough, right? They didn't call the voters racist hard enough. If only they had done that, if only they had spent more time explaining to the voters why they were all racist, sexist bigots for not voting Democrat, then everything would have changed, right? That's, that's part of the narrative and part of the fight that's going on internally within the Democratic Party, right? And I'm sorry, but arrogance plays out significantly in how voters think when they go to the polls. If they perceive the party in power as being overly arrogant, they will punish them, right? And a lot of that, I think, took place as well. So those are some of the things that you saw on the other side, right? Obviously, Terry McAuliffe, when he said that, you know, he didn't think parents should be telling uh, their schools what to teach. What was fascinating to many people like me who are familiar with Terry McAuliffe is we know that Terry McAuliffe believes that but he's never come right out and say it. And 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 that's one of those things that we think also affected the way Democrats performed at the polls was the fact that um you know they usually get away with these really really well marketed talking points that they focus on right like they want to support public education right they want to take care of our teachers they want to you know keep everyone safer they want everyone to get a livable wage but then when it comes into the actual policies and all of a sudden businesses are going out of business and there's fewer jobs and you have situations where um you know people like Terry McAuliffe are actually telling you exactly what they think of parents being more involved in their child's education then all of a sudden the voters don't like it so much And what what ended up happening this last election cycle was they were a little bit less guarded with respect to what they said and how they uh, talked to the voters, and they got punished for it. All right, so that's what they did wrong. What did we do right on the Republican side? Well, here's an interesting part, right? There are elections where you can go back and look at it, and you can say that essentially one party won because, you know, the other party was embroiled in some sort of massive scandal, right? Or there was a personality component that the voters just didn't like, Or there there was some other major factor where one side loses the election more than another side wins it, if that makes sense, right? So it's not that one party got out there and promised something specific or concrete um, or or really convinced the voters that they had a series of of policy positions that they liked. It's more that the other side screwed up so horribly bad that it was essentially a a referendum on them, not so much a desire to have some of the other things that that the other party was suggesting. That didn't happen this time. This time you had a combination because the Republican Party in Virginia and Glenn Youngkin at the top of the ticket, and the top of the ticket always kind of ends up driving what the narrative is going to be for uh, the election cycle. He didn't just say, look at what a bad job the Democrats had done. He didn't just say, oh my gosh, I can't believe Terry McAuliffe said that you shouldn't be involved in your, you know, shouldn't be telling schools what to teach. He didn't just say those things. He actually said, and if you put us in charge, here are the things we will do to fix those problems. So he didn't just point out problems, right? The the Republicans running didn't just point out problems. They said, here's the problem and here's the solution to this problem. And the solution to the problems that we were addressing, whether it was public safety, whether it was education, whether it was the economy, was a stark contrast from what the Democrats were offering. The Democrats were trying to convince you that everything that they were doing was actually working out in your favor and people didn't buy it because that is not what their practical experience was in their day-to-day life. Right, and then what did Republicans come in with? We came in with the same, well look, if you put us in power, we will cut taxes. We're gonna get rid of onerous regulations. And one of the biggest things that we advocated for was expanding educational choice and freedom. It was this idea that we have too many kids trapped in failing schools, and rather than just sitting back here and throwing more money at the problem, which has been the Democrat solution for decades now, it was time to actually empower parents to be able to get their child an education that was going to work for them, right? And then there was, there was the other issues that Republicans run on, and this time was no different. We ran on being pro-life. We ran on being pro-Second Amendment, right? So if, if you look at the, the platform that we ran on, it pretty much lined up with what Republicans say. But there was specific, specific instances where policies like charter schools, policies like getting rid of um, state-mandated vaccine requirements, um, doing things like getting rid of the grocery tax. These were all specific things that were mentioned, right, that need to be accomplished, right? We need to actually use the power that we have in order to get that done, right? And this, this is critical, right? Not just for, you know, I, I would say inherent moral reasons of you, you made a promise, you'd stand by your word. It's also important because if you don't deliver on your promises, then voters have no real reason to send you back, Right? And, then, and they'll be willing to give somebody else a shot if they're willing to come in and promise something and, and potentially deliver on it if after they put you in power, you promised to deliver on things and you didn't do any of it. All right, so here's the question, right? Because this seems, this seems to make sense. Uh, the logic of this makes sense. You got elected. You didn't get elected purely because the other side screwed up. You got elected based off of things you said you would do. Now, go do those things. But here's the question a lot of re- Republican voters have right? And, and here's the concern a lot of Republican voters have, because they're essentially going to say, this isn't the first time Republicans have been put back in charge and then failed to do the very thing we put them in charge to do, right? Repealing of Obamacare was a perfect example of this, right? Re- Republicans had voted to repeal Obamacare something like 60 times when they knew they couldn't repeal it because the president would either vote, it or the, uh, vote against it or they didn't have the votes in the Senate. So, all of a sudden, now you have a Republican House, you have a Republican Senate, you have a Republican President, you have everything you need to do it, go do it, and then Republicans failed to accomplish that. So there's a lot of Republican voters that believe that, okay, they they, they want what Republicans are offering, they want to reject what the Democrats were imposing, but they are very, very skeptical on whether or not Republicans are going to deliver on it. So here's the question. Why wouldn't Republicans deliver on it? Right? That's, I think that's the $1,000 question in the minds of a lot of voters. They're like, wait a second, we put you in power because of the things you had said you would do. Why would you even be hesitant to do those things? Why would you even be hesitant to put forward the very bills, the very ideas, the very solutions that got you elected? And this is where I'm going to explain it. The reason why all of a sudden Republicans get nervous once they're in power is because the media that is usually, let's just say either is outright supportive of Democrat bills or uh, handles Democrat bills with, with kid gloves when they think there might be a problem, All right, there's a complete 180 shift when we're in power. So it's not as if the media treats anybody in power with skepticism. The media treats Democrats in power very, very differently than they treat Republicans in power. And so now... Um, when when the election cycle or the news cycle wasn't as focused so much on Republican legislation or Republican ideas because Democrats were the ones in charge, right, a lot of Republicans get this idea that, okay, well, we got elected because they were mad at Democrats, but we need to be really, really super careful with what we do. Otherwise, the press is going to come after us. They never give us a fair shake. They're going to hammer us. We're going to lose control of the narrative. And the next thing you know, we'll do 10 good things, but the only thing that'll get any press is the one the one thing that was controversial. And so let's not do any of those things that we think might be controversial with the Second Amendment. Or let's not do any of those things that we think might be controversial with life or, or whatever it is. And this is the part where Republican voters look at this and say, wait a second. You know, we, <laughs> we wanted you to do these things. Why aren't you doing them? And you have Republican elected Republican officials that think, well, we really got to have those swing voters, and those swing voters don't like those issues. Or those swing voters are not really paying attention to those issues. They're going to turn on the news and all they're going to hear is how Republicans are being extreme and crazy and, and, and nuts. And so now it's time to punish Republicans' next election cycle. That's what they're afraid of. The question is, is, is that a reasonable fear? Is it a reasonable concern? Now... Again, I, I get frustrated by this, but I'm also in a very good Republican district, right? So it's easy for other people to come in and say, well, Nick, you don't have to deal with these issues. You're, you're not in a swing district. You're in a safe district. So, you know, bottom line is your opinion on this, it, it doesn't really carry a lot of weight because you don't have to deal with the consequences of what happens if you carry this, quote, controversial legislation. Okay, let, let's, let's, give, let's give that argument the benefit of the doubt. And let's see how do we effectively address it. All right. Well, the first thing that you would do if you're concerned about delivering on your promises, which we better be, is you would say, okay, what did we run on? Well, we ran on school choice. We definitely ran on. There's no question that Republicans from the top of the ticket to every other, to to school board elections, ran on the idea of giving parents more choice and more say with respect to what happens within their schools. So the first thing that we should be looking at, the first thing that you should be looking at as voters during this next election cycle, is what sort of educational choice bills get drafted? What what gets actually sent to the clerk's office? And what do you see showing up at the education committee within the House of Delegates? Right now, here's the calculation you should take into consideration as a voter as you're looking at all this going through. One, you should be demanding from us that we deliver genuine educational choice, genuine school choice. And and school choice to me is not just a, a slightly larger list of government-approved options with respect to government-controlled schools, right? There, there should be options in there for a whole host of educational venues and mechanisms and, and techniques and processes, right? It shouldn't just be, okay, here's the public school and here's the government-run charter school, right? There, there needs to be consideration for other methods of, of receiving an education And recognizing that we're all paying these taxes and allowing parents to have more control over how their tax dollars are spent or making it easier for them to engage in other forms of education, maybe through the form of tax credits and things like that, that allow them to explore things like homeschooling or co-ops, that all needs to be a part of the larger package. Right and, and, and again, I think the good news is, is, I think we're going to see that. We're going to see the Education Committee and the House of Delegates not only looking at increasing the ability of charter schools, which I think is a good first step, but also looking at other mechanisms to make sure that we're opening up education to a larger marketplace of ideas. And it's not just this narrow, government-monopolized, you know, essentially one-size-fits-all where politicians get to decide what all of your education looks like. Right, whether it's at the state level or at the local level. It should be more about parents being able to explore a larger marketplace of ideas and find what works best for their kids. Now, we ran on, we ran on these ideas. We ran on school choice. We ran on more charter schools. We should be able to deliver on that. So when session starts on January 12th, you will have the ability to go on legislative information services. You'll be able to look at the various bills that your legislator, that your representatives have submitted. And you'll be able to follow that through the committee process. And that's, when, that's the area where you can have the most power. Can I just say right now, there's going to be a lot of people where, you, you know, you weren't just involved for the election cycle. You weren't just involved for the campaign. You now want to see things get done, and you want to make sure that you're holding your legislators accountable. Here is how you do that, right? Here's how you hold me accountable. You can go to Legislative Information Services. You can just Google that in. You'll see Lobbyist in a Box. There's this little feature that they provide where you can actually track individual bills and get notification. So you find the bills that you like and you say, I want to track these. I want updates. Now, a lot of people think that the most effective thing they can do is they can take a form letter that maybe an organization gives them and they can email it out to 100 delegates and 40 senators saying, hey, I demand that you know, this bill, you vote yes on this bill. Let me just say right now, you can do that. Personally, I don't think it's the best use of your time. All right, the most effective use of your time if you are trying to lobby for a piece of legislation that you expect your representatives to vote correctly on is to contact your representative. It's also to know what committees your representative is on. So if your delegate is on the Education Committee well, they're going to be one of the first people to take a look at those education bills. And you want them to know that you expect Republican legislators to, to vote yes on these education freedom bills. All right, that's very, very important. So understanding where your representative is, what committees they sit on, Knowing what bills that you support and then calling them up and making sure that their office knows that you are serious about getting these bills passed, that's very effective. Here's the other thing I would say. If you've got a good representative, if you've got someone that generally you think is is very honest upfront about what they believe, what they do, um, don't always start off every conversation with your legislator like, you better do this or you're out of here. All right? Now, some of them may deserve that. That's fine. But... There's also, there's also the ability to encourage people to do the right thing, not just threaten them if they don't. I'm not saying don't threaten them if they don't if with respect to you know, your vote or, or your future you know, efforts on their campaign, but I'm just saying both of those are a mechanism. Both of those are a mechanism, and both of them can be effective. So that's one of the first things, right? We ran on education policy, so this is a no-brainer. If we ran on educational choice, we need to deliver legislation. Now, here's the second part of this. Republicans won the governorship, the attorney general's office, the lieutenant governor, (coughs) and the House of Delegates. That leaves one more legislative body, right? The Senate. We do not control the Senate. So there's gonna be a lot of people that are looking at this from this perspective. They're gonna say, okay, if this is something that we think we can get done, (coughs) which is to say we think we can get it through the House and we can get it through the Senate, because if we can get it through the Senate, we know the governor will sign it, right? We've already talked about this. That is where they're gonna wanna put their priority. Right, So their, their idea is going to be, um, if, if we don't think it's something we can get through the Senate, some people are going to say, why would we waste any time on it? All right? Why won't we focus all of our time on the things that we can get through the Senate? Here's the reason why I don't agree with that line of reasoning. Yes, you should put a, a great deal of focus on good policy that you think you can get through the Senate. If you think we got a couple senators over there that you can talk to, that you can work with, that will we'll, uh, you know, make it to where we can pick up, the bipartisan votes that we need in order to get politics, of course that should be a main priority. Of course that should be a main priority. Does that mean you don't carry a bill that you think will be difficult or maybe even in some cases impossible to get through the Senate? No. And here's why. Because once again, you were elected to do something. You were elected based off of the principles you told your voters you believed in. And you still need to carry that legislation and vote accordingly even if you think that there's a good chance that it could die in the Senate. And the reason why is very simple. Not only are you making good on your promise to your voters, but you are also showing a contrast between what we believe as Republicans and what Democrats believe. Because again, part of the reason why Republicans got the majority is because we showed a contrast with respect to how we would govern versus respect to how they had governed. So if we make good on our promises and we're carrying those good bills that protect your Second Amendment rights, that protect life, right? The lower taxes, the decrease regulations that um, support your property rights and the Senate kills it, right? And you can't convince them to come along. Great, then two years from now when the Senate is up for reelection, that's when you go back and you say every area of government that you gave us control over, we delivered on our promise and the one thing that stood in the way of us not being able to accomplish even more things were these votes in the Senate that absolutely did not lessen during the last election cycle refused to let us pass this legislation and so we couldn't get it to the governor's desk to be signed. But you can't make that argument if you weren't willing to send the bill over to the Senate sign and make them take a vote. Make them get up and make an argument. Make them get up and explain why they're not going to actually give the citizens, what they expected out of this legislative session. You can't do that if you're not willing to make them take the vote. So, yes, the, the, the part of the argument that says we should put a, a high degree of emphasis on good bills that we think can make it through the Senate, I, I, I have no problem with that reasoning, makes perfect sense. But if you extend that to say, we shouldn't focus on other bills that are good policy, that are part of what we ran on, that are part of what we believe and part of our platform, if we're not going to send those over there because we don't think the Senate will pass them, again, you have, you have failed in the other responsibility that I think you have as a legislator, which is not just to try and make a good argument, but it is also to say we did everything that we could with the power that we had, and the one thing that stood in our way was beyond our control, but you as the voters can fix that in two years. Right, but you have to be able to create the conditions where that argument can be made, because if you don't even bother to carry the bill, then your voters don't have any reason to expect that you will do it, even if you do control both chambers. So that that's a very very important factor, and again, something that you should encourage your legislators on. Um, the other component here, and I and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, and that is you will have some people that are afraid that if we carry something controversial. So let me, um, you know, whenever we get into things like gun bills or whenever we get into things like uh, pro-life bills. You always have some people that are very, very concerned about how, that is, how that's going to play out within their own districts. There's two things that we all need to consider here, all right? Again, the first step I always take is, is the one on principle. It's the idea that if this is what we believe and we think it's good policy, then of course that we should, we should carry that legislation. But other people come on and say, well, Nick, here's the problem. I, I may agree with you on the legislation, Um, I may agree with you that it's it's good policy, but it's not gonna pass the Senate, and the press is gonna tear me up, and my opponent's gonna tear me up in my district. So why would we waste the time, right? That's the argument coming back. And again, there's a certain degree of superficial plausibility to this. Here's one of the problems that I have with this kind of reasoning, and and again, I know it's easy for me to say this because I'm in a relatively, you know, I'm in in a very, what they call a safe district, right? I, I won my race by like 24 points. Um, The problem is this, if something is good policy, but you think it's going to hurt you within your district, my question is, is why don't we take the time and provide the assistance to help you make that argument in your district, to help convince people that this is good policy? Like if you think it's good policy, if I think something is good policy, I see it as my obligation to stand up for that good policy and to make it more popular. Right. My my first question for a policy is not whether it's popular; it's whether it's good. Then I ask whether it's popular, and if it's not popular, I don't abandon the policy. I try to come up with a different. I try to come up with a different way to look at this policy, to discuss this policy, to argue for this policy in such a way that we can convince people to come around to a certain way of thinking or understanding of it. And, and let's face it, there there are any number of policy positions in the past in U.S. history that have been horrible policy positions that may have been really popular within a given district or within a given state or within a given community? Does that mean it wasn't worth it to make the argument and and to try to explain why we needed to adjust our course? No, I don't think it is. So it's not that I'm not sensitive to the understanding that that there are certain topics or certain um, pieces of legislation that might be more controversial in a particular district. But I am skeptical of the idea that because something is controversial, therefore we shouldn't touch it. Because, my gosh, if we touch that, we could potentially lose the majority. Because here's, I'll tell you this much, I remember when Republicans were in the majority in the House of Delegates before. I remember when Republicans ended up carrying really bad legislation. And the reason for it was, well, we need to protect some of these people in controversial districts. And I remember sitting there at a meeting, and I said, okay, let me explain. I said, everyone agrees that this policy, which Republicans have opposed for the past six years, is bad policy. Nobody here is going to convince me that all of a sudden, a bill that you voted against for the previous six years suddenly became good policy. It didn't, and you know it didn't, all right? People wanna do it for politics, good what they think good politics is. I said, let me explain why it's bad politics. I said, if you are all of a sudden supporting something that you've never supported before, when none of the data has changed, or if you find yourself opposing something or not voting for something that you told everybody that you believed in, here's what ends up happening in the minds of your voters. One, your base, the people that support you, they feel betrayed. Because after all, you told them, they voted for you because you told them you believed in one course of action and you didn't believe in a different course of action. So you betrayed them. That's how they feel about you. On the other side, on the left, right, the people that are praising you for crossing over and being bipartisan, you think that means they're not going to run somebody against you? You, What, you think that means that the Democratic Party is going to sit out the next election cycle in a swing district because you happen to vote for them on a couple of policy positions that they liked? No, they're going to come at you full bore and they're going to tell all of their voters that, Look. The last four years or the last two years or whatever it was when this person was voting against this legislation and now they switched, now they changed their mind, they didn't do it because they believed in it. They did it just because they're trying to trick you during an election cycle. And if we could just get rid of them, then we could have somebody that truly believes in this. That's going to be the argument the left makes. Now, what's everybody in the middle going to hear? Well, everybody in the middle is going to hear your base saying that you're a traitor and they're going to hear the other side saying that you're a liar. Right, because you betrayed the base when you went back on what you believed. And the left's gonna say you're a liar because you said you couldn't vote for it before because it was bad policy, but now all of a sudden you switched your mind during an election cycle. So everyone in the middle that's not paying a great deal of attention, all they know is neither side really likes you very much. How does that help you politically? So here's what I here's what I would encourage the voters. Here's what I would encourage, you know, all of us as legislators. Yes, we need to be smart about how we do things. We need to be smart. We need to be principled. We need to be tactful. We need to understand that there were certain things that were put out front and center in this election cycle. And yes, it's perfectly reasonable to make sure those issues which were front and center are the ones that get priority when we go to the legislative session. But that doesn't mean we abandon the other things that got us here the other components of our platform and our statement of principles that we're supposed to believe in and that we're supposed to fight for. So yes, be strategic. Focus on those bills where we campaigned on it and we think we got a good chance of making it through the Senate and getting on the governor's desk. makes perfect sense to, to prioritize those. Don't abandon bills simply because they won't get through the Senate. If it's good policy, it's good policy. If it's one of the things that the people of Virginia elected us to do, then we do it, even if we think it's gonna be difficult in the Senate, and then we make every single one of those senators explain why they didn't vote for good policy. Make them explain that. But you have to provide the, you have to, you have to provide the opportunity, right? So that's, that's one of the other things we have to do. And then finally, when we have bills that we think are going to not make it through the Senate and be controversial, The first question that we should ask ourselves is, is this in line with our principles? If the answer is yes, then automatically it needs to be considered. The second question that we should ask is, why do we think this is controversial? Why is it controversial? Is it controversial because it is legitimately, no kidding, controversial? Or is it controversial in part because the media is constantly engaging in manipulation? Or the left has been completely misrepresenting what it is that we're trying to do? Because if that's the case, then we can't simply abandon it as good policy. We have to find new ways to fight for it in a way that can be effective as well as sensitive to the people in districts where this could be more of a swing issue. So don't abandon it, but certainly work with people to be able to fashion an argument that makes sense. And part of what that's gonna require, and and look, obviously I come from a very liberty-oriented, very conservative wing of the Republican Party. And I get that not all of my fellow Republicans share all of my my values with respect to individual policy positions. And and what I'm willing to say right now is I I am willing to sit here and be reasonable, but by the same token, I, I ask that that's reciprocated. And I don't think there's anything unreasonable about insisting on the core values of our platform and the policy positions, which inevitably we're all running on the moment we say, I'm a Republican and this is what we believe. So, the way that I think you as voters can be the most effective on this is a couple of things. One, show up. When we have lobby days down in Richmond, show up to those if you can make it. I realize it's very difficult for a lot of people with work and everything else, but show up to lobby days, it does have an impact. Two, with the bills that you're tracking, don't just randomly email 100 delegates, right? If I get a form letter from somebody, that lives 300 miles away from my district, do you think I'm spending a lot of time on that form letter? Right, of course not, because I have to focus on my constituents. But if you know where your representative is, what committees they sit on, if you know people in other districts that have representatives that sit on key subcommittees, you really can't have an impact on what happens with legislation. Because one of the secrets that most people don't realize, there'll probably be over 2,000 bills filed this legislative session and about 70% of those will never make it out of a subcommittee, which means it isn't 100 delegates that's looking at that piece of legislation. It, It may be seven. So knowing where an important piece of legislation is within the committee process is very, very important in order to have the best impact you possibly can when you are advocating for a particular policy, right? Again, the other point I brought up the relationship with your representative doesn't have to be hostile, right? It doesn't have to just be a series of threats, do this or else, right? Quite frankly, any elected official that is worth their salt, that is willing to actually stand up and fight for the things that they believe in, it is not just going to sit there and cower every time somebody threatens them with something. So understand that sometimes, that you know, the, the stick is important. Sometimes saying, look, if you do this, you will lose my vote, because... I will take it as you lying to me or betraying me, right? But it's also valuable to tell somebody that, that, you know, you know has a good voting record, that has done a good job, that has fought very hard, hey, look, I appreciate how much you've been fighting. Please stay strong on this bill. Please stay strong on this bill. And then when they do, come back and say, hey, I just want to say thank you. You know, I asked you to stay strong. You did. This is why I vote for you. Again, it can be really, really encouraging, okay? So, Again, I am, I am by no means suggesting that you shouldn't say, hey, look, if you do the wrong thing, there's going to be consequences. But I am suggesting that there's also value in, in thanking someone when they do do the right thing, especially when they've done it under an incredible amount of pressure. And here's the third point I'm going to bring up. For those of you who do want to see good conservative policy, but you live in a district where somebody run their, won their race by a couple hundred votes, that is someone that needs your support. All right, obviously, they're going to go down to Richmond, And and they're going to be very, very sensitive to some of these bills that are more controversial. It doesn't make them a bad person. It doesn't automatically make them a squish or a rhino, right? But the more they hear from their constituents that this is what you elected them to do and you're going to be there when they take that hard vote, you're going to be there during that next election cycle, right? You're you're going to help them out to make sure that they get reelected because you're the sort of person that they want to see representing them. The more you can do that, the more courage it affords to them, right? Because let's let's be honest, there's nothing easier than sitting back at a safe distance and demanding that everyone else display the courage you expect to see. But when you're willing to get up alongside the people that are going into the fray, going into that battle, addressing that controversial issue that you know is the right thing in a difficult place and in a difficult district, when you're willing to be that support to them, then they know they're not alone. Then they know they're not, they're not just voting on something that is gonna automatically, you know, potentially cost the majority, right? Every once in a while you may, have to, you may have to stand up and die on a hill. Every once in a while you may have to have an Alamo. But nobody wants an Alamo, <laughs> all right? We wanna be able to pass good policy and make the sort of arguments that can convince people to come along to our way of thinking. Winning within politics is not just defeating your opponent. Winning in politics, genuine winning in politics in a free society is convincing people to embrace the sort of policies that actually advance and protect individual liberty, property rights, free markets, and self-determination. And if those ideas are not popular, well, I've got news for you. You're not long for a free society and we need to do everything that we can to make them popular. And yes, your legislator, your representative, your delegate, they have an obligation to do that. But if you really want to win, you'll also see it as a personal obligation. I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. I want to thank you for joining us. Again, if you're interested in following key legislation as it goes through the process, Enrichment, Legislative Information Services, you can Google that in, LIS, it'll come up. There's a little program called Lobbyist in a Box. Check that out. It's going to let you track all of those things. You can also find out information about your um, delegates, your senators, what committees they sit on. As we're going through this process, again, those, that's the thing I would ask for you. Continue to stay involved in the process. Right? It, when when your, your representative is fighting hard, give them the benefit of the doubt, but just like Reagan said, trust but verify, and let them know that you're going to stand with them when they stand by the policies and the principles that you elected them to stand by. Once again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next episode and uh, have a great holiday season.